Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journeys. If we're looking at not just where we are now, which I had mentioned we're in the middle of the sixth extinction, but where we are going, right? The projections are something around nine to 9.6 billion people on the planet by 2050. Um, and we see billions of people emerging into middle class, particularly in places like Uganda, Nigeria, and India, and China. And those individuals will want to eat more protein and drink more milk and want air conditioning. Uh, and drive cars within their within their lives, and what that means is at least a 70% increase in food production and an increase in land area that's equal to the size of the United States. What we have seen is is the scale of this problem is exponential, right? It scale population growth is an exponential problem, and our solutions have tended to be linear. So how do we actually increase the speed and scale and efficacy of those solutions? Well, the one area where we have been doing that has been in, in, in technology and the, and the connect, coupled with the connectivity that we have worldwide. Those two particular tools, how do we harness them to find new solutions? I'm very pleased today to introduce Alex Deegan. Alex is the CEO and co-founder of Conservation X Labs startup for tech innovation for conservation and development. Prior to founding Conservation X Labs, Alex served as the chief scientist at USAID and founded the Global Development Lab. Conservation X Labs aims to harness exponential technologies, open innovation and entrepreneurship to dramatically improve the efficacy, scale and sustainability of conservation efforts to end human-induced extinction. Well, thank you very much, Alex, for taking the time today to join me and on Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs. Um, very much looking forward to talking to you, uh, finding out uh, what you're up to in Conservation X Labs, uh, the work that you're doing, and uh, what you hope to achieve in the future. Yeah, so, so um, maybe I could just start off and tell you a little bit about what we're doing Is that, and who we are. Brilliant. Yeah. That sound okay as an introduction? Absolutely. Um, so Conservation X Labs really came uh, because of my experience working with, uh, as chief scientist of, of the U.S. Agency for International Development, which is uh, the world's largest bilateral development agency. And we built what was called a DARPA for development, which was uh, a recognition that we needed to completely rethink how we were solving development problems. And as I was looking at fields like global health and food security, which had adopted things like open innovation, uh, adopted things uh, like advanced technology and just the evolution of those fields, global health itself had started from a field called tropical medicine, which was all physicians, frequently all male, and uh, who had essentially said, I understand what all the problems are and I understand what all the solutions are. And the fact is they didn't. And we saw this evolution from tropical medicine to global health that evolved um, where you saw many more disciplines coming into uh, the field of anthropologists and economists and engineers were just as likely to be global health experts. 
And after I left USAID, after we launched this uh, DARPA for development, uh, the, the Global Development Lab, I realized that conservation had perhaps an even bigger problem than development did. If you think about it, conservationists are kind of the worst people to actually invite to dinner. We're, we're perhaps the most depressing people to have uh, at your dinner table. We've invented a field whose entire job is to document and lament the passing of species. And in the 30 years that the Society of Conservation Biology, which is the flagship academic society, was created, uh, and it's been about 30-something years since we even coined the word biodiversity, um, we saw we haven't seen the successes that we've needed. We've been exponentially successful in building things like national parks around the world, but in fact, we're still in the middle of a sixth extinction. Those extinctions are at a thousand times background extinction rates and are probably underestimated by a factor of 10 because the very animals that we tend to study have a bias towards those animals that are, that are widely dispersed, easy to detect, uh, wide ranging uh, for a number of reasons, which, which means that they're actually much more resilient to withstand the, the forces, um, both random and directed of the extinction process. So, so I wanted to take what I had learned from what we had done in international development, um, which was launch grand challenges, think about how we use what was called exponential technologies, and think about how we use entrepreneurship and apply it to the conservation field. And so I started uh, in two ways. One was um, in my role at, at Duke University to really think about creating a new discipline of conservation innovation and conservation engineering and orient, reorient conservation from a single disciplinary field or um, even a limited field of, of, you know, mainly biologists, but a few economists and a few others uh, social scientists moving into a field to truly a multidisciplinary field that was much more similar to a, a discipline of engineering than it was a discipline of biology. The second thing was to set up a company that would help with creating the ecosystem to be able to bring new technologies that would help us improve the speed, efficacy, scale, and sustainability of conservation efforts just because we had generally 10% of the money we needed at any one point to solve any of these problems. And we needed to fundamentally rethink the ways that we were going about solving them. We needed to broaden the disciplines of individuals involved. And we needed to bring in entire new solutions and new solvers to how we would actually do it. And we needed new sources of income. So on those ideas, um, Conservation X Labs was set up. Right, that's fascinating. Uh, it's very interesting you talk about the uh, multidisciplinary approach because that's something in recent interviews that is uh, has been highlighted and the nature of some of these problems are so complex and so interconnected that uh, you know uh, any siloed approaches or approaches from one particular perspective or, or frame of mind uh, are inevitably limited and uh, the challenges do need this uh, interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary approach. I'm wondering about the uh, role that you, you, you ascribe to technology or the focus you have on technology. I can see how a multidisciplinary approach can, you know, uh, offer many, many uh, benefits. Why is it necessary to have technology? What was your analysis of the problem or of the challenge in the way conservationists were working that suggested that technology was the solution? 
actually solve these problems. So that's just kind of the first statement. Um, and it was just a missing that conservation has actually tended to be technophobic. And I, I want to get into some really specific examples and, and how we're thinking about that, because I think that makes it more concrete uh, in, in, for, for understanding the subject. But, but I want to go back to just one comment on a multidisciplinary thing. I think we're at a period of time where the experts are fully able to help us understand the actual problems, but in no way are in charge of all the solutions. And in fact, for a long time in conservation, we've asked biologists to do things like ecotourism. And it just made sense, right? You're building a national park. Well, um, you should set up tourism operations. You know, what does a biologist, right, which are those at the parties that like to sit there and look at their shoes rather than engage, actually understand about marketing business, um, the, the ability of running a hospitality industry, which is its own specialization, right? Or what does it understand about the use of sensors or machine vision or, or some of the emerging fields of biology and what impacts those have? And that's kind of the reason is that there's an incredible set of new innovations that are out there. And this gets back to the technology question and that there's, um, there, there's been this vast, what I call a democratization of science and technology, the accessibility of technology, the power that is in something like an iPhone, it isn't a communications device. It is a sensor. It is an education tool. It is a way of, of doing financial transactions and incentivizing people. And it is a way of scaling up every aspect of what we need in conservation. And that gets to kind of why technology it is because I think if we're looking at not just where we are now, which I had mentioned, we're in the middle of the sixth extinction, but where we are going, right? The projections are something around nine to 9.6 billion people on the planet by 2050. Um, and we see billions of people emerging into middle class, particularly in places like Uganda and Nigeria and India and China. And those individuals will want to eat more protein and drink more milk and want air conditioning uh, and drive cars within their, within their lives. And what that means is at least a 70% increase in food production and an increase in land area that's equal to the size of the United States. It also means doubling the amount of nitrogen, phosphorus, um, the amount of pesticides we would potentially use, the amount of water uh, that we are using around the world. And where is their land equal to the size of the United States? Well, it's the Congo Basin, it's the Amazon Basin. And that really makes me think we need to come up with solutions that no longer just deal with the systems of conservation. Um, how do we actually create these islands for the preservation of biodiversity uh, and try to set those apart? But how do we actually get at the underlying drivers, which is reinventing protein sources, which is thinking about engineering resilience for the changes we already know that will come no matter what we do on climate change for the next hundred years, which is restoring 20% of the planet's earth uh, that is highly degraded. And what we have seen is, is the scale of this problem is exponential, right? It scale Population growth is an exponential problem. And our solutions have tended to be linear. So how do we actually increase the speed and scale and efficacy of those solutions? Well, the one area where we have been doing that has been in, in, in technology. 
and the and the connect coupled with the connectivity that we have worldwide, those two particular tools, how do we harness them to find new solutions? Um, that still requires design. That still requires understanding the problem. It still requires understanding uh, and designing for the ecosystem that you are working in. Just as 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 Apple is designing iPhones uh, for the consumers it sees as its main client. Right, right. Very interesting. That's very interesting. Now, you mentioned that they, uh, I think in a recent interview, you talked about um, some powerful new tools for conservation. So I suppose that uh, that would be interesting to get your sense of what some of these technologies are that ha maybe haven't been uh, applied to conservation and, and maybe talk a little bit about those and wh what potential you see there. Yeah, so, um, you know, I'll, 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 I'll start with things that we are working on. So we recently ran a global challenge, an open innovation competition around, uh, you know, how do we rethink uh, one of these underlying drivers? And so we actually decided to say, if we're thinking about what are the grand challenges in the oceans, what are the potential, you know, what are the major problems and how do we solve them? And what's the first problem we should hit? And we actually chose aquaculture and aquaculture is important um, because 50% of the world's fish is now farmed. Uh, you know, something like half the Earth's population is within 60 to 70 kilometers of a coastline. And so as, as we have this increased demand for protein, it's clear that we need to look toward the oceans to provide it. But the way we grow fish, we, the way we farm fish, is we actually capture wild fish and what we call trash fish and feed it to grow fish. Um, and the way we do that involves, you know, horrible environmental practices. It involves, you know, sometimes slavery. It involves, um, you know, essential damage that cannot be undone to our systems. So it is not a sustainable way for food security um, in the ways and the pathways that we have now. So we've been really thinking about how do we actually come up with novel ways to replace the protein within uh, fish meal, uh, which is what is used to feed fish in aquaculture. And how do we do it in a way that, it, and how do we actually reinvent the whole aquaculture sy systems and come up with new products from the oceans? And some of the, some of the solutions are, you know, looking at fungus, looking at bacteria to actually produce protein, capturing um, carbon dioxide that comes out of smokestacks and turning it into a protein source. So we actually get a climate benefit, growing algae and growing insects, um, such as black soldier fly, which have the impact of actually using black soldier fly to either uh, grow grow them off of um, agricultural waste or grow them off of sewage or other types of waste. So you literally are having a simultaneous benefit to reducing waste and producing protein sources that go into fish production simultaneously. With algae, it's even better because algae is an amazing, fast-growing, super-efficient source of protein. But it has this additional benefit that if you actually start feeding algae as part of the protein sources on terrestrial feeds, such as to cows, you can get the cows to produce less methane, and cows are a major source of, of carbon dioxide. Um, that's kind of a, uh, a really simple but boring set of innovations that I think could be profoundly transformative in meeting, you know, an unbelievable percentage of this planet's protein supply. Right. 50% of the planet that actually lives 
uh, near the oceans. But I think that there's even more exciting ideas. Much as people brew beer, uh, there's a company called Perfect Day that has figured out how to brew milk. And the milk is chemically indistinguishable from milk that is produced by cows. So it's not, it's not something like soy, uh, which is, you know, results in deforestation or almond milk, uh, which, which isn't a driver of deforestation, but has this additional problem of being highly water dependent. So almonds are heavily grown in California, which is in the middle of the drought. It is actually produced without a cow, um, but it is milk and, and, and it has a couple of advantages. You don't have the animal, uh, you don't have the animal welfare situation that you do with cows. You don't have the deforestation that goes, uh, and land clearance that goes with the production of cows. You don't have the methane production that cows have, which are major drivers of environmental change. Right. But people are a little bit freaked out. They're like, well, you're brewing milk. Well, we've been brewing beer for, for a few thousand years, starting off in Egypt. Um, you know, this is tweaking, tweaking the same products to actually brew milk in novel ways. And there's a whole set of what are called cellular meats that are pre- being produced. And another example is new, new wave foods, which is looking at growing, uh, uh, algae to actually produce shrimp. It's a substitute for shrimp that no longer needs shrimp ponds, which produce huge amounts of pollution, uh, uh, environmental degradation that's associated with shrimp and then of course the slavery issues uh, that have been associated with shrimp production um, all of those are skipped and uh, you also have something that's now vegan and kosher <laughs> for, yes. for individuals around yes. the world yes. uh, with a much more sustainable footprint and this is kind of what I mean right. I think I'll stop there but there's, yes. there's yeah. a lot of other technologies that are out there but those right. are some of them no they're fascinating um, it sounds really interesting. This these these uh, ideas you're talking about. Uh, I guess I'd be interested in in understanding because um, uh, presumably in labs all around the world there are some you know fi- fascinating, exciting, and and maybe even science fiction. <laughs> what looked like science fiction approaches to uh, you know some of these questions you're talking about, and they may well uh, and and many of them uh, some of them will turn out to be effective. What is your model for a diffusion of innovation on, and reaching scale? Because, you know, the, somebody might have come up with, with this great breakthrough. But um, how do you look at this question of getting it to the places that, that would absolutely need it? So this is, this is a great, I think this is a great question. I think the first part of it is, um, and this is really, I think, the areas that we are uh, deeply interested in is, how do you build the innovation pipelines? The one issue you have with universities is they're based on this thousand-year-old system uh, that is really ineffective at translating knowledge and service to society. And even in the United States, there are really a few places that do it well, and they don't do it efficiently. It's places like Stanford and MIT um, that I think are leaders in thinking about how you translate the knowledge. And this is despite the fact that in the United States, most research is supported by the American taxpayer. So, so the first idea is how do we partner with universities to really be able to identify the innovations we need? And then how do we actually find others who have great ideas, but um, don't have necessarily the opportunity? 
And that's where prizes and challenges come in. That is where partnerships with universities come in. That's where our own research comes in. The second is really moving from those great ideas and that great research to, to an innovation or a prototype. And that, that really comes to, do we understand uh, what, are the, what, what the problem is? Do we actually understand the insights into the demand? And how do we build scale, uh, the scalability of the product in from the beginning? Conservation is super effective at creating pilots, just like development has been. But uh, a set of pilots, if it doesn't go to scale, doesn't have an, an effect. If you reach a million people in India, which, sound, which sounds like a lot, it is still uh, a thousandth of the population of the country. And it's a question of whether that a million people would even count as scale. And it depends on really the problem you have. Then is really this question of, as you have a prototype to be able to do the testing, to be able to do the consumer interviews, to, to take, um, to develop a minimum viable product and continue to iterate on its design. And then there's this question of how do you move from innovation to enterprise? And that's really all of the elements of what's the business case for what you're trying to do. And, and this is where we're trying to build a, you know, one of the first conservation technology accelerators uh, along with an investment fund to be able to take some of these ideas particularly where there might be um, where there's either direct demand for the product and that's where all the design elements come in um, or there's secondary markets outside of conservation that would help scale the actual product uh, and and this is you know or there's a company that actually wants to acquire the technology to transform how they do their own business right and right these are, these are kind of this is what we're this is what we're trying to do is how do we build the how do we source develop and scale uh, the products that could fundamentally transform these underlying drivers of extinction right right and where are you on that journey because this is it's it's a, uh, it's a it, I won't say an old chestnut but it's something that's uh, it's 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 around it's it's very ever present uh, this question of uh, really scaling uh, successful and powerful innovations in so the social sector yeah so we, we um, we're actually in the middle of, of, uh, of two things one is uh, there's a we're actually writing a piece, um, a paper on scaling and conservation because we don't believe conservation has been successful in scaling. You know, if you look at international development, um, there's 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 really a small handful of global successes, and those are things like we've been able to eliminate smallpox and render pests off the face of the earth. So those things have scaled. Oral rehydration salts, it's taken us 50 years to scale really simple innovation uh, to deal with um, diarrheal diseases, which millions of children die from. We've got guinea worm and we've got um, polio that are on the brink of scale of, of being eliminated off the course of the planet. Guinea worm probably will. Uh, polio, it's, it's, it's limited actually by behavioral and cultural factors in Nigeria in Pakistan and in Afghanistan. And I think we're close on those cases, but the, hand, the, the number of solutions we have, um, things like vaccines uh, are, are somewhat limited and the examples out there are somewhat limited and they take entire systems to be able to do. In our case, we're about to launch in partnership with other conservation organizations because we can't 
you know, our job is, you know, we want to disrupt the conservation sector, but we want to disrupt it by doing it with the conservation organizations and helping them transform how they're actually solving these problems. Uh, and we rely on their, the global reach of those organizations of national governments and of others to test uh, support to help us with the policy frameworks that help these things scale. But right now, you know, particularly given the election in the United States, it is hard, it is unlikely that the government, our government here will be the solution to how we get these ideas to scale and that we actually need private sector investments to be able to, 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 to change uh, the very choices available to consumers to change the very tools that we have available to solve these problems and to, you know, deeply automate, accelerate, um, and uh, address the underlying drivers of extinction. Right. Very interesting. Now, you mentioned this word, uh, which we hear a lot of, uh, particularly in Silicon Valley, uh, but it seems to be uh, everywhere now, uh, disruption. Um, and I want want to get your views on disruption because, you know, uh, by and large, when you see uh, investors talking about it, technologists talking about it, it seems to be this amazing thing that disintermediates, that offers more efficient ways of doing things and promises. And yet there are, you know, huge side effects in, in many cases. There are, you know, social systems that are disrupted and, you know, uh, who benefits uh, from these disruptions? And uh, I'm just wondering about some of the side effects of disruption and uh, you know these these sometimes systems uh, you know build over time and they are you know complex and interconnected and you know some piece of technology you know sweeps into the arena and 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 you know and everything changes and you know is there not a real danger of unintended consequences yeah so I so there's there's two thoughts you know one um, conservation conservationists have been disrupting things from the beginning. The first national park involves pretty substantial, and every national park we build around the world, people live in those areas. It's very rarely that you build a park that doesn't have an incredibly disruptive ability for the residents and the communities that are there, both good and bad. Um, so this idea, I don't think the idea of disruption in conservation is something that's necessarily new. I think um, the other thing is just to recognize that we have um, policy choices that that we need to make globally. And I'll, I'll give you one example from development, uh, just given I've, I've worked in development and conservation and there's some, there's some really great um, choices there is small scale farms. So we spend an enormous amount of money in international development supporting small scale farmers. But small-scale farmers actually don't have the ability to increase food production efficiently. And the tendency is they actually, shifting agriculture is a main driver of deforestation that's out there. In Madagascar, a place I've spent many years working, it is a, a significant driver of, of deforestation, uh, you know, contributing to 90% of the loss of forests on that island. But our small-scale farmers are also super unresilient to climate change, they don't have the ability to use and integrate advanced technologies and seeds, which have the ability to dramatically increase productivity for them. So if we're thinking about the larger global environment, it isn't supporting small-scale farmers, it isn't investing in small-scale farmers, and in fact, what we tend to do is we actually reinforce poverty 
by investing in small-scale farmers. Why do we actually invest in small-scale farmers? It is entirely a political calculation that is intended because we don't want people moving in masses to the cities where they may not be jobs for them and it results in social unrest. So it's, it's a great question, right? It's a choice we're making. And that choice has ethical quandaries in both ways, right? If people are forced to move to the cities, then there needs to be a set of livelihoods for those people in the cities. If people stay on these small-scale farms, they actually contribute and continue environmental degradation, are unresilient in the face of climate change, and also that uh, we essentially are keeping them and their children and their children's children in poverty. And it's an ethical question. I think that you can look similarly at some of the tech, some of the technology um, that we're doing with uh, with uh, thinking about, you know, there are, there are, there's advances in understanding genetics, um, particularly our ability to use and edit the genome much as you can edit a Microsoft Word document, the letters of a Microsoft Word document. Now, this is where new tools like CRISPR-Cas9 have gotten us. And many people are, you know, uh, scared of what the implications of this technology are, and there definitely needs to be an ethical framework. But this is the question. We can take something like a heat shock protein and, and increase the ability of a coral symbiote to withstand ocean warming. So the question is, do we not use this technology to address ocean warming? Um, a much tougher question is ocean acidification. And we lose the entire coral reef of the Maldives or, or the rest of the coral reefs that hasn't been lost of Australia or Belize. Or do we help actually use these advanced technologies with imperfect knowledge and try to find a solution that would actually allow us to protect those coral reefs. What is the more evil choice? The loss of, of all the coral reefs or a, a particular technology that, that is new and we, we are unsure of those unintended consequences. And I think this is where <coughs> concepts like the precautionary principle actually don't work. And we have real challenges with thinking about what the future of, of these technologies are for what we're trying to do. I think most of cases when people think of unintended consequences, they're thinking of driverless cars and what it means that we're putting all the truck drivers out of business. Well, I mean, we used to have textile plants and, and many of those textile plants don't exist in the United States. Um, it's unlikely we will get those textile jobs back or we want those jobs back because the technology has taken those things that are time-consuming that require huge amounts of data and covering large amounts of area uh, and allows us to accelerate it. And we now have the ability to, to eliminate that. That's also applicable to how we can protect our forests, how we understand the, the um, spread of invasive diseases and uh, invasive species, which are driving many species extinct. And again, there is a larger ethical and social framework um, that has to give license to these kinds of approaches. But a lot of times we're not using evidence to, to make those decisions. Right. Very interesting. Covered a lot of ground there. Now tell me um, a little bit about the scale of your operation, where you are today and where your vision, where you want to be in the next five years, Alex. 
Yeah, so we're 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 we've only been around for a year and a half. Uh, we are small, um, although we have put on this with the Australian government and uh, a couple of other partners, including WWF and an innovation group called Second Muse, a, a global challenge around rethinking aquaculture. We just <coughs> awarded the winners of those that challenge um, in the. Uh, uh, at Secretary Kerry's Our Oceans event. We also have, um, we're about to launch the accelerator and, and bring in the first cohort classes focused on um, uh, ocean food and new foods for the oceans as well as new feeds for the oceans. We're looking at expanding into other areas such as wildlife trafficking, plastics, uh, thinking about um, other areas of food, thinking about invasive species, uh, and we also build technology. Two things that that are under development have been uh, this handheld portable DNA, what's called a barcode scanner. So the idea that we aren't developing DNA technologies for a really pristine lab, but you're building it for a customs warehouse in Zambia or the end of a pier in Palau. And those are some of the things that we have underway. I think in five years, the idea is is literally to, to, to be the Bell Labs or, or Google of conservation technology where we not only, not only are um, uh, building technologies ourselves, but we're actually unlocking innovation and transforming the entire field and bringing together a tribe of new conservation engineers and conservation anthropologists, and conservation economists, conservation marketers that are all uh, helping us find new solutions. And one other thing that we, we're we about to launch uh, in early 2017, uh, probably at this conference called Earth Optimism, which is about, you know, changing that depressive tone in conservation that I talked about at the beginning of this podcast, is um, one of the first open source hardware platforms for building conservation technology that if people have a really good idea, they can come to the platform Bring, it, bring a community and join a community of engineers, of designers, of economists, of behavioralists, behavioral economics experts, and help develop new technologies that uh, we can help take to scale. And if they are successful, put it to the accelerator and get funded. Great, great. What, what have been the challenges for you um, on this journey? And what, what are some of the challenges? Uh, are, are you a social entrepreneur? Do you see that? Uh, uh, it's a very loose term, means different things. But um, uh, do you see yourself as a social entrepreneur? And what are some of the biggest challenges you've had so far, Alex? Um, so yeah, you know the what? There, there's probably there's there's a few. I I uh, I definitely think I'm a social entrepreneur. But I you know I've seen variations of the use of the term. You know, one sense is. Social entrepreneurship is using the tools of business, but is not necessarily, you know, and has, um, but has mainly a social, you know, their currency is the mission rather, rather than um, necessarily a profit. I actually believe deeply into the double bottom line that without some sort of both, you know, we're interested in both the economic sustainability and scalability of the product as much as we are of the ecological sustainability of what we're trying to do. And so in that sense, we're ultimately still just entrepreneurs 
I think in in our activities. Um, but I, but the challenge for me is been I really want our organization, and I turned down amazing opportunities to join it to have global impact, um, to really be at a scale that matches the size of the problems that we have. And the only way really to do that, uh, if you are not an international organization, is by leveraging the power of others, of, of recognizing that talent is everywhere, but opportunity is not. And we really want to be in that business of providing opportunities to others. Um, so I think that's the second sort of, you know, I think the challenge of making sure that whatever we're doing is actually financially sustainable is one. I think making sure that we actually hit the scale uh, that makes what we do relevant is the second. And then I think the third challenge is um, conservation. So I, I've met many awesome people within uh, the conservation movement that are really excited about what we do. Um, but you know, at least in terms of where the investment in funding is, we've got this challenge that traditional conservation funders are still doing the same thing and expecting different results um, and, and are highly conservative and in fact are holding back the actual field from the innovations that need to happen. And I think that this really goes, you know, they feel that, well, we can't take risks they're actually taking greater risks by, by keep doing the same things and hoping that um, things will change without the evidence basis for that change. I think the other side of the equation is the investment markets haven't recognized that there is a market for uh, social entrepreneurship that is you know highly um, lucrative, particularly given that global interest rates are at the lowest they've uh, almost ever been that there is opportunities for returns and those returns can actually help us chart entire new pathways to industrialization that, that mean countries don't have to follow the pathways that we've taken, that our ability to feed increasing populations can do so in a way that are fundamentally greener. And, and I think that there's, there's great opportunities for investment there, but we're in the middle between those two places and that's also been a little bit difficult. Great uh, to hear your, your, um, that was the wrong thing to say. Let me just note that <laughs> the time. Uh, what time was that? What time were we on our call at all? I, it's hard to do the. It's fifty-seven. Yes. So, um, so what I meant to say, and let me cut that again, is that sounds very interesting, uh, and and inevitably doing, uh, being innovative and creating change is is challenging, and uh, and I wish you the very best of success with that, Alex. Um, so thank you very much for taking the time to speak to inspiring social entrepreneurs today, and uh, good luck with uh, your continuing work. I, I uh, thank you very much. I just want to say, I think whether you're an entrepreneur, an intrapreneur, or an extrapreneur, where you're influencing other organizations, there, I, I think you're in the right place at the right time to actually have an impact around the world. And so I, I, I hope everyone else joins us in, there's, there's a lot of room to, to bring great change. So thank you for the opportunity to chat. Best of luck. Thank you. Cheers. Um, so uh, I, I, I realized there was a question I should have asked earlier and I'm going to cut that back in. If you Have you got a moment? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, one is, uh, I'll just ask you about it in a second, is the question of incentives. Um, and um, so um, to, to what extent, Alex, um, are you concerned about incentives and how they operate in the world of conservation? So this is, this is a 
question. So the one thing that's, that's really clear is that if you look at behavioral economics research, people will not act uh, because it's always the right thing to do um, for merely the moral good. Otherwise, we have far better gains at things like climate change. They also have this issue that they see the problem as too big and too um, diffuse for them and their individual actions, even though collectively they could have enormous impact to, to transform what they're trying to do. So this question of actually human behavior, which is tied to marketing, which is tied to identity, is, is critical and is actually part of the design process in everything that we are building. So what is it that, that would, you know, what are, what are the pain points that people have? Uh, what are the barriers or the constraints of preventing people from um, acting in a way that allows them to take up a new product, to take up a new solution or, or stop doing an action? And so there's different ways of doing this. With consumer products, it's finding replacements and in some cases, it's actually eliminating the choices that lead to environmental unsustainable practices. Uh, palm oil would be one example um, in terms of what you're trying to do. It's where there are incentives to get people to act. And there's a great example, which we probably don't have time to go into, but it's called Recycle Bank, where they found a really novel way of uh, incentivizing people uh, through points that can be used for Starbucks cards to uh to recycle the the thing that they they got the cities to recognize to put up the funding was that they were spending the money anyway because they were sending more garbage trucks to the landfill if they could reduce that there was actually a pool of money that could then be used to increase recycling levels and that led to a whole bunch of other value chain considerations in terms of what we're trying to build in, in terms of bringing in new solvers and new solutions into the conservation space. So bringing in engineers and anthropologists, this is actually this question of how do you build a community? How do you keep that community sticky? How do you keep it engaged? And how did you create, not just through financial incentives for cooperation to happen, but for other ones like identity, competition, gamification, how do we use those as fundamental tools in our behavior uh, to increase our leverage, increase our opportunity, uh, and to get to the types of solutions that will match the speed and the scale of the problem. So I think incentives uh, are critical in so many different ways. It's a great question to ask. Right. It's interesting because you mentioned um, this question of financial incentives. And I know from speaking to people active in, in, in conservation that uh, they discover that working with local communities who have a real commitment to the uh, to, to, to the local environment, that they find that they actually have uh, quite long term thinking. And you'd imagine when they sit down to look at some of these uh, challenges that they would be also trying to, you know, uh, you know, uh, focus on the, 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 you know, making money as well, but the t taking a very long-term perspective and the surprising uh, result. And, I, and I'm just wondering, sometimes, um, you know, while, while social entrepreneurs uh, and the pursuit of profit and uh, certainly driving more sustainable organizations that can, you know, do their own work without looking for funding the whole time uh, is very important. Do you see any danger of over-reliance on financial incentives, financialization? And, and you do hear people talking about this, you know, financialization and commodification. And once you introduce the profit principle into uh, many kinds of social systems, they are changed and not always for the better. 
Yeah, so I think the one thing that's important to distinguish is between products and programs. So programs, I think, um, that's probably definitely true. And, and in fact, this is what I'm talking about incentives. When I talk about identity, uh, people are actually much more, you know, people may see themselves as environmentally green. And if you give them opportunities to act on and reinforce that identity, uh, that is actually a powerful incentive itself. Fear is another incentive. Uh, competition is another incentive. There's a great example of a small um, street in the UK called Tidy Street where they put energy use and they painted it on per house on the road in front of each house, which actually reduced uh, the ability that people had to, uh, to address the problems. Uh, in terms of programs, I, I you know, the... I think you're 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 right that um, communities can actually make good decisions. It's it it depends on a lot of things being right, right? So one of them is land tenure and ownership and control. Uh, the second is actually controlling for things like the prisoners dilemma. Um, in game theory, where individual saboteurs can actually uh, defeat that entire system if one person chooses to monetize. Um, it's how you have the, it's, it's how you're structuring those programs. But one example, you know, we, we tend to spend huge amounts of money in conservation, uh, without necessarily a guarantee that we're going to get results. And there are new ways of people, prizes and challenges are one, which are pay for performance mechanisms. There's something else called advanced market commitments, which, which governments agree to buy, X numbers of products, such as a vaccine, if the manufacturers actually produce that uh, product. So they literally are creating a market for it. Um, and ways of using pay for performance, I think, can be really powerful even on a local level. Um, this is just a personal story, but when I was in Madagascar, I worked in a set of habitat fragments across many years, and it took a number of years to actually get enough data to understand. Uh, these underlying drivers of extinction and trying to create a model to predict extinction among lemurs in Madagascar. So I needed these fragments, which were in unprotected forests, to be there across a couple of years. So I figured out what people actually pay for the charcoal after they burn down the rainforest and what they get from a year of growing rice and paid, paid villages 50% of that amount up front and promised them 50% at the end uh, based on the valuation that they would have gotten from the forest if they would protect the forest um, for, for that year. Um, not only did they protect the forest, the trails had overgrown, but they actually made very smart decisions as to what to do with the money, which I hadn't given them any input on. Uh, some had grown fast-growing trees, other had grown uh, fruit trees, which are far more sustainable and increased incomes for those villages. Um, it wasn't my intent to, to do that experiment. It was my intent to try to finish a PhD. But I found that really interesting in a place where USAID had poured millions of dollars but hadn't really seen the effectiveness of those investments. It was a really small amount of money. It was probably a dollar or $2 a hectare, uh, which was what value they were getting off of, uh, off of um, those investments. Um, two to three dollars a hectare but it was a really simple incentive that that was a recognition of ownership of those villages and the provision of alternatives the fact is people will still always need to eat 
they'll still need to feed their families and they still have underlying desires for what to do. And when they don't have those alternatives, you can have uh, all the long-term goals that you want, but they're very hard to put into place if you're not, you know, if you don't have an alternative. Very interesting. Very interesting. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.